Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, a fact which Vice President Joe Biden has called a big f- deal. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. How come uh, people are coming down on Joe Biden for dropping the F-bomb when, in fact, like Bush and Cheney use that a lot more than, than Obama I was gonna say, and Biden do? And, and Biden's was, was very well – meaning he wasn't using it at someone the way <laughs> I Dick don't know, Cheney though, was. Biden's was especially stupid. They're, they're at the signing ceremony and he's yeah. right in front of the podium. Come on. I, I kind of feel like people aren't coming down on him all that much because we're just so used to Joe Biden doing things like this. Oh, oh that's true. Biden said something stupid. All right. News at 11. By the way, did you guys – did you see the email we got um, condemning us for introducing Luke as Dr. Professor Luke Galen? What? I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. Got an email from someone saying, you don't really need to do that. You guys are good enough. You don't need to throw the credentials around like that. Only people who don't have any anything to say throw around credentials like that. And I, I wrote I, back and explained that it was a tongue-in-cheek thing. Yeah. I hope you realize that I'm not uh, – that's not something that I ask you to do because I don't need to ask pump, pump my credentials up any more than uh, they He's got a knife are. to my throat every every time we do this. No, we just it. we just tease Luke. I think it's more of an expression of Dave's perceived inadequacy as a clinical okay. psychologist, <laughs> licensed <laughs> clinical psychologist. We can That's see in Dave often a, a striving and a resentment of simultaneously a striving towards and resentment of the father figure represented by me, who's someone who he wants to desires to emulate and so much older, but who is also a hostility. He has hostility towards. So. That's that's right. Well, uh, speaking of uh, poor father figures, uh, yeah, transition. Hey. Wow, that was pretty good. I know. That was good. Uh, there has been a lot in the news. I don't know if you've noticed this about uh, the Holy Father who uh, um, is becoming increasingly closely linked to many of the sex scandals going on in the Catholic Church. But But don't worry. It's not his fault. It's the fault of secularism, therapy, the sexual revolution, his underlings, demons, and, of course, the victims themselves. Um, That's some good foreshadowing for the rest of the show. Yeah, yeah. Now, we were going to talk about this on our last episode, and we just ran out of time because we had so much fun with the history lesson and all of that. And two weeks ago, when we recorded the previous episode, it was not nearly as big a story as it is now. Yeah, I'm glad we waited. It's it's been a really tough week this past week for the Catholic Church, uh, but it's been a tough couple of months for the Church too. Mm-hmm. Ireland is still reeling from those Ryan and Murphy reports, but now the sexual abuse scandal is spreading throughout Europe. It's reached the Netherlands, Austria, and Germany. Germany's had 250 accusations in the last two months alone. Austria's had 200 in just the past couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. 
There was that great story on March 4th about uh, gay prostitutes yeah. in the heart of the Vatican. It's, it's like they write our shows for us. We don't even have to do anything. <laughs> we just, just, just read the headlines and we don't even have to do any work. And this story was kind of a welcome change because it didn't involve children. So this was this is actually one that we can kind of laugh about. But they were specially ordered. It's yeah. like they were ordering pizzas. Well, like, and this is in the heart of the Vatican too. Yeah, the, for the choir, right? Yes, the person in question is Angelo Balducci. He is the senior advisor to the department that oversees all the church's missionary activities throughout the world. Mm-hmm. He's also a ceremonial usher in the papal household, which gets him the wonderful title of the papal gentleman. Nice. He was caught by police on a wiretap negotiating with a, a Vatican chorister about the specific details of the men, the male prostitutes that he wanted brought to him at the Vatican. So that was an interesting In story. In terms of their singing voices or <laughs> – No, their physique actually. I, I do imagine this like anytime you try to get more than two people to order a pizza. Like, I like pepperoni. Oh, I don't like pepperoni. Well, I really like anything but mushrooms. Oh, that's my favorite. Can and, we get it half and half? And like, <laughs> you know, I, I like my guys muscular. Oh, I, I, you know, I'm a bear. I like them hairy or – Well, the, actually uh, the the telephone transcripts were – about of that character. Yeah. But we'll leave it to the listeners to seek that one out on their own. No, no dramatic readings this no, time around. No, no. Plenty more news to get to. Um, just the week before last, it came out to the press that Cardinal Sean Brady had personally covered up the abuse of Brendan Smith, a Irish priest who assaulted over 100 children. But then the shit really hit the fan last week when the New York Times published a series of articles alleging that Pope Benedict himself ignored and refused to punish and in some cases relocated to other parishes known abusers within the church. So the child abuse scandal that started in America decades ago is now a worldwide scandal and evidence brings culpability for this all the way up to the top. Now, the allegations concerning Pope Benedict, this is all before he was pope and he is for the record, let's be very clear on this, not being accused of any abuse himself. No. That he is not personally responsible. Just of abusive logic. Yeah, well, yes, it absolutely. And, and of bureaucracy and all of that, which doesn't I don't think makes him any less guilty. So he didn't do the molestation himself. He was still personally or his office was personally involved in transfers looking the other way, including times when recommendations said, this priest is dangerous. Do not put him where he can work with children, and they still did it. Yeah, well, let's go over the specific cases that involve the pope in a little bit more detail. Many of these sources that I'm using are going to be the New York Times. Yeah, New York Times has had some great coverage. Yes, they've done a very good job. But I encourage people to go to doubtcast.org. Every claim made in this episode is going to be cited in meticulous detail. So please be sure to make use of all those sources if you want to fact check any of this. Are you going to replace me with a lawyer next week? (laughs) Not a bad idea. The first case involves Benedict back when he was the Archbishop of Munich from – in the years 1977 to 1982. In September of 1979, Father Peter Hullerman – was removed from his congregation after three sets of parents told his superior that he had molested their sons. Uh, And Hullerman did not deny any of the charges, 
Christopher Hitchens put the situation a little more bluntly. He said, in 1979, an 11-year-old German boy identified as Wilfred F. was taken on a vacation trip to the mountains by a priest. After that, he was administered alcohol, locked in his bedroom, stripped naked, and forced to suck the penis of his confessor. And Hitchens adds, why do we limit ourselves to calling these sorts of things abuse? Hmm. Well, mostly because we don't want to read those types of graphic details yeah. in an article, but I think he has a good point. Sometimes we just need to – we need to stop euphemizing these things right, and right. really uh, talk about what really happened. So a couple months later in December 20th of the same year, Munich's personal chief, Father Farr, who was a personal friend and close contact of then-Archbishop Ratzinger – Father Farr received a phone call explaining the abuse to him. There's no record of the phone conversation, but there is a letter that followed it on January 3rd. The letter claims that Hullerman presented a danger and he was immediately withdrawn from his pastoral duties. Uh, it said that no proceedings against him were pending. Which is, which is um, church proceedings, right? And I still don't understand this, why these are internal matters for the church and not criminal matters. I don't get that. Well, well, we'll get to the history of that in a little bit, yeah. but I don't think there's any ethical rationale no. to why. So Father Farr now knows about the situation and on January 9th of 1980, he prepares a summary of the situation for top officials at the diocese. He recommends that the chaplain needs medical psychotherapeutic treatment in Munich and also says that he should be placed in a living situation with an understanding colleague. And in fact, part of Farr's summary is actually praising Hullerman for being, quote, a very talented man who could be used in a variety of ways by the church. Now, the link to the current pope comes just a few days later on January 15th, 1980. Archbishop Ratzinger presided over that morning's meeting at the Council of the Diocese, and on the agenda, item 5D was Father Hullerman. All reference to the discussion that took place has been omitted from the notes, which is unfortunate. I really wish we knew what they were saying in there. Right, but not surprising. But the notes do say that the request is granted, uh, the request being to move Hullerman to the Munich congregation and start him on therapy. And Father Hullerman would live at the St. John, John the Baptist Church in the northern part of the city. Five days later, on January 20th, Cardinal Ratzinger's office received a copy of the memo from his Vicar General, Father Gruber. Father Gruber, we have 30 seconds before this bomb goes off. Informing him that Father Hullerman had been returned to full duties. Father Hullerman resumed parish work on February 1st, 1980. So um, whatever time he was given in therapy was exceedingly short. And he was a he was immediately introduced into work that would allow him to be with children once mm -hmm. again. Right. Uh, and not surprisingly, he continued to abuse. In June 1986, Hollerman was convicted of sexually abusing minors and given an 18-month suspended sentence with five years probation and fined 4,000 marks and ordered to undergo therapy. Now, the memo went to the Pope's office, but the former Vicar General Gruber – took full responsibility for the decision to reinstate the priest, and the Vatican has now issued a statement saying that the then-Archbishop had no knowledge of the decision to reassign Hullerman to pastoral activities in the parish, and the Vatican rejects any other version of the events as mere speculation. 
but the Vatican statement is the one that's speculation. Right. Gruber himself said only that he couldn't ever remember talking about it, mm-hmm. but he refused to rule out that he hadn't. And regardless, this is still just passing the buck, right? Because it's his office that oversees this. If he didn't know about it – He still has a responsibility for absolutely. knowing about these things. Father Thomas Doyle, who's worked at the Vatican Embassy in Washington, said, quote, nonsense. Pope Benedict is a micromanager. He's the old style. Anything like that would necessarily have been brought to his attention. Mm-hmm. Tell the Vicar General to find a better line. What he's trying to do, obviously, is protect the Pope. And still, even if the Pope didn't know about this, it's as you pointed out, David, is it's negligence. And right. So it still presents a problem. Either he knew about it, he turned a blind eye to it, or he was just bad at his job. But when he was at this meeting, he was aware of the priest and he was in a position to refer the priest to prosecution right. or to make sure that there was no way that he could con- come into contact with any more children and he simply refused to do so. Mm-hmm. The situation gets even worse. Just last week, on March 24th, the New York Times drops a huge bombshell. This one also involves a sex scandal that the Pope refused to act on. This one's really horrifying. The situation concerns Father Murphy, a priest of the Milwaukee Archdiocese. He was also a teacher at St. John's School for the Deaf in 1950. A renowned school for deaf children, the kind of school that you want to send your deaf child to. But not really because as early as the 1950s, the first accusations started coming out. Mm -hmm. Regardless though, he was still promoted to run the school in 1963. Apparently, Murphy just couldn't keep his hands off the children. Um, He molested children in his office, in his car. He would take children out to his mother's country house. He would take them on fundraising trips. Uh, he would even molest them in their dormitory beds at night. As many as 200, 200 children. Father Murphy even molested children in the confessional. It's not like people weren't speaking out about this. Arthur Budzinski led a group of former students who had been abused and for more than 30 years they were trying to get this guy to get this guy disciplined. They even went so far as passing out leaflets outside of the Milwaukee Cathedral to try to raise awareness about this. But the Catholic Church's response was, he's just such a Budzinski. The police ignored these reports as well. Three successive archbishops in Wisconsin were actually informed that he was abusing children. But documents obtained by the New York Times show that it was never reported to civil authorities. And incidentally, just as an aside here, the story, Vatican declined to defrock U.S. priest who abused boys by Lori Goodstein in the New York Times – The story comes with a link on it where you can personally go through over 65 pages of documents from within the Vatican, from these parishes that documents all this stuff. None of this is based on hearsay. This all comes directly from confidential documents that were in the church's care. So it's especially hard for them to dodge any of these claims. Eventually, somebody did something about it. Archbishop William E. Cousins moved Father Murphy in 1974 to the Diocese of Superior in northern Wisconsin, apparently because knowledge of his abuse was a little too well known where he was teaching. 
So Father Murphy spent the next 24 years of his life working with children in parishes, schools, and juvenile detention centers and continued his abuse. Doesn't it always seem like they shift people out to the hinterlands in the country where arguably they could be even less supervised than what they are already? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which does not seem like a, a great idea. I'm just saying. Yeah. In 1993, the complaints were still coming in and Archbishop Wakeland now hired a social worker specializing in the treatment of sexual offenders to evaluate Murphy. And uh, the article says after four days of interviews, the social worker said that Father Murphy had admitted his acts, that he had probably molested about 200 boys and that he felt no remorse over this. Unfortunately, it took three more years for Wakeland to try to do anything about this. Uh, In 1996, he tried to get Father Murphy defrocked. His rationale was he wanted to diffuse the anger among the deaf and restore the trust in the church. And he sent his letter directly to Cardinal Ratzinger because at this time, Ratzinger was the head of the Vatican office called the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. It used to be called the Inquisition. (laughs) Uh, This was from the years 1981 to 2005. Cardinal Ratzinger headed that post and this was the office that was in charge of uh, looking at allegations of this kind and going through the procedures to defrock priests. Which you think would be something to consider when nominating someone as pope, just because there's going to be something there that's going to come out like this stuff has. Uh, I I just – given the record of the Catholic Church, I would think if you're head of that council – you're probably not the best guy to put on top of Yeah, the- well, one of the guys who nominated him was Cardinal Law. Yeah. Who was personally involved in the Boston Archdiocese cover-up. Oh, yeah, right. And uh, and he was eventually made uh, – he was eventually shifted to Rome and uh, and put on the Council of the Family, the Pontifical Council for the Family. So uh, there's, there's another person who covered up who – actually was involved in in electing the pope. Mm. Well, I think one of the points that some of the articles make is that that he's known as being a professorial doctrinal type guy and that's those are the things that you look at when you call your way right. up the church hierarchy not your skills in handling personnel issues. In fact, those things are de-emphasized. I love that this is a personnel issue. You know, in what other context would this be considered, you know, something for the human resources people to take care of? basis for his rise in the hierarchy was the emphasis on his defense of Catholic doctrine. Yeah. That's his that's what he is his whole raison d'etre is. And he was pretty zealous about that too. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He barred uh the assignment of theology professors who didn't agree with him. He punished priests for holding mass at peace demonstrations. Apparently he could get pretty fired up and active about those types of things, mm-hmm. but uh seemed to ignore a lot of the sexual abuse. Well, no response to the letter that Wakeland sent to Cardinal Ratzinger, no response at all. And so Wakeland, a year later, tried again. This time he wrote a different Vatican office, hoping that somebody would listen. And he included in his letter that the matter was urgent because a lawyer was preparing to sue and the case could become public and a true scandal in the future seems possible. That got their attention. Eight months later, it got their attention, but still, mm-hmm. it got their attention. Um, the second in command at the doctrinal office, Cardinal Bertone, who's now the Vatican Secretary of State, 
he told the Wisconsin bishops that they could start a secret canonical trial to hopefully defrock Murphy. But those proceedings were interrupted because Father Murphy himself personally wrote to Cardinal Ratzinger. He wrote to Ratzinger saying, I ask your kind assistance in this matter. What was the matter? Well, by now he was in poor health and he was elderly. He said, I simply want to live out the time that I have left in the dignity of my priesthood. Boo-hoo, you monster. Yeah, unrepentant. Uh, well, he claimed to be repentant right. at that point, uh, but abuser of 200 children. And Ratzinger complied and the proceedings to defrock Murphy were dropped. Archbishop Wakeland tried one more time. This time he traveled all the way to the Vatican in May of 1998 in one last-ditch effort to persuade them to defrock this guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and they still didn't go through with it. And so Murphy died at age 72. He was buried in his priestly vestments and never spent any time at jail for any of this stuff. Luckily, in 1998, after almost 50 years of prayers, God finally got off his ass and did something about this guy. I mean, that's the only explanation you can offer here, right? Uh, well, it reminds me of what Hitchens said about Jerry Falwell. It's a shame there's not a hell for these guys to go to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just an interesting side note, Wakeland himself ended up resigning in 2002 because the media found out that he'd had an affair with a man and had uh, oh, used no. church money to pay him off. A, a consensual adult? The abuse scandals that are coming out now are generally are involving uh, things that happened oh, 30 or more years ago. So we have these older priests and you know they just want to die with with dignity and why are we – Picking on them when this is – screw that. I'm so sick of these old monsters asking for pity because what? Now they're helpless? Sorry. This is really <laughs> – I've been reading so much of this and I'm, I'm really up in arms about all of this. Uh, oh, I understand. I, I mean, I've been following this moment by moment the past couple of days yeah. and just getting more and more infuriated. And most infuriating is the defenses – Oh, these are amazing. That these Catholic apologists and priests and cardinals are all offering. Well, well my favorite is what, what uh, the Vatican – I think it came from the Vatican. What they keep saying in response to these newspaper articles, well, there's nothing new here. What are you reporting this on? There's nothing new. We all know this is going on. What? Well, let's, uh, I wanted to talk about some of the uh, the representative argument because we do have you know there's that's that's an empirical issue. How representative the, the one of the defenses yeah, is, right. the, and this is something maybe I'll I can play devil's advocate and you guys can argue back at me that that this is not something that's unique to the Catholic Church that any institution that has Teachers, contact with the uh, yeah, yeah so even the the criminal justice system the secular institutions have abuse and that it's um, – well, like Bill Donahue's classic thing is that it's basically anti-Catholicism. Right. Uh, and, yeah. And, uh, the anti-Catholic defense. Well, I have a great quote about that if you want to hear yeah, it. Yeah, let's lay it on. Let's. Uh, this comes from David Quinn, columnist for the Irish Independent. Mm. He says, A great deal of the coverage attaching to the issue of child abuse by Catholic clergy is undoubtedly motivated by an animus towards the Catholic Church itself because abuse of other organizations rarely receives coverage. But unless evidence can be found to prove that there is something about Catholicism itself which produces abuse on a scale found in no other institution that cares for children, then we will have to assume that this animus is in fact a prejudice and treat it as such. Yeah, and so that's the, the issue here. Then is would any comparable other institution uh, uh, that 
handles as much as of contact with people with vulnerable, traditionally vulnerable populations. Right, high. Right. Is there something unique about it being Catholic in other words? A, if it were going on in schools, say public schools or wherever else, then it becomes a criminal matter and the law deals with it. Within the Catholic Church, it becomes a, a human resources problem and they shuffle them around rather than actually doing something about it. They move them to another location. And that that's a big part of it. Also, there's that whole doctrine of celibacy, which seems to lead to sexual dysfunction. Canon law doesn't require them to report these abuses. Right. And I'm not saying there aren't teachers out there or healthcare workers or ministers of other uh, religious sects that are not doing these same sorts of things. But it's the scale and it's the, the bureaucracy that makes this possible in the Catholic Church. But here, listen to this statistic. This comes from a study in 1995 by Bottoms, Shaver, Goodman, and Kin. Catholics constitute about one-quarter of the U.S. population, but in reported cases of child sexual abuse involving religious authorities, 54 percent of perpetrators were Catholic. So this is a Catholic issue. They are yeah. overrepresented in cases of child abuse. Yeah, I was trying to find some stats with the general. The, the problem with abuse is, is that it's, it's a broad category. And so you, right. one of the, sep the separations that most mental health professionals do is, is between pedophiles who technically abuse prepubescent children right. and then ephebophiles which abuse the above pubescent borderline. So like I've teenage. never heard that term before. It's, a, it's like, a good distinction. Like yeah. uh, if you are past puberty but under the age of consent, it's still legally you – know, like right. if it would be statutory rape or something. But that would sure. be – that would be this involves more seduction and that sort of thing. Or even the, you could argue that that Lolita it would be in a feeble file rather than a pedophile because sure. it would be a young teenage girl rather than a prepubescent child. Right. right. Now, and then the other distinction then is that a lot of the things that are sexual abuse are not necessarily only children. So when you just see a study, often people fill sure. in because the stereotype is it's a child if it's sexual abuse. But get this one: fifteen hundred Catholic priests over a twenty-five year period half had indicated that they violated their celibacy vows. Yeah. Okay. So that could be most likely in those cases. It would be with other adults, um, each other, other or, consenting or adults, other. Um, yeah. and that one third of U.S. ministers in general. So that's not Catholic. That's everybody admit to having engaged in some sort of sexual misconduct. And then another study found twenty five percent of pastors had some sexual involvement with a parishioner. Yeah. Of course, you talk sexual misconduct, um, especially amongst clergy, that could mean mm. masturbation to them. I mean this is self-reporting. An affair or it could be – it could even be consensual sex that is frowned upon, it, you know, premarital right. sex. It shows that celibacy is – the celibacy rules don't even work. No, not, clearly not. With, with half of their congregation, the celibacy rules just simply don't work. Now, if that's ministers as well as priests, those people could presumably have a uh, – be married and have right. access yeah. to uh, an adult consensual relationship. Mm -hmm. Let's argue about that. Is it the celibacy itself or with pre-Catholics or in general with ministers just that having grown up in a culture that tends to maybe put the lid on sex in a variety of ways, sure. not just celibacy but just saying – you know, like for example, the, in the school that I grew up in, we had guys who were married that were clearly probably gay. 
So it's not a, an issue of their celibacy, but they're raised to not express their sexuality in their preferred outlet. Yes, with consenting, you know, uh, other gay men. And so um, some of these things, like affairs, for example, or sexual contact with parishioners, could be because they're not allowed in general to direct right. their sexuality. Have a healthy to, sex life. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think an indirect argument could be, um, for example, exploitation of nuns. Don't the hear enough about the nuns. The incidence of that harassment was 12.5 percent. Wow. Um, but actually Jewish female clergy report much higher rates, 77 percent. Methodist clergy women, 75 percent. Whoa. But yet the Catholics are o- far overrepresented, twice their their amount mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in cases of child abuse as just shown. So there's an, an indirect argument that there might be something going on there because celibacy would be the major difference there. Right. And besides, several studies have come out on celibacy pressures. For example, SIPE in 1990 and Slauson in 1973 came to the conclusion that uh, celibacy can contribute to abnormal expressions of anxiety and other undesirable behaviors. Levine, Althoff, and Risen in 1999 showed that when celibacy is required of clergy, they often experience considerable conflict over their own personal sexuality. Well, one argument to make is that uh, is that okay. There's part of it that might be the celibacy itself is imposing restrictions and that that suppresses sexuality to the point where they lose control of it. But the other thing could be that many priests go into a celibate state because because they, they don't want right, to express they don't want their, to express yeah. that, and they figure okay, if I become a minister or a priest, that would be a controlled, safe environment for yes. the rest of my life, and therefore it won't be an option. So there, you could argue that it's not so much that celibacy caused it, but that people self-select sometimes into yes. a celibate job because they think that that would solve their problem. But that is still an indirect argument yes, against indirect. celibacy. Yep, it's it's saying that this it creates an institution which allows these people to seek sanctuary. Yeah, that's, it's indirect. Well, I'm wondering how much of their, of their situation is also due to their, uh, their well-known problem of the decrease in the pool of available priests. Mm, and, and that is, is that – you know, and it might seem like that's not connected because if you have a, a, somebody who's a potential felon, then that's easy to eliminate. But I think a lot of these cases right. might be, if you've worked in organizations, might be like, well, Father O'Reilly, we've heard a couple of things. Should we let him go? Well, we got, you know, he's covering five parishes in rural right. Kentucky or something like that. So yeah. would we really want to err on the side of cracking down really super hard if it means that there's no longer anybody who's going to cover those things anymore? If you look at the population of priests, it's crashing. Uh, granted, the Catholic population is decreasing in some areas too. But right. who, who are who, uh, educated people who can actually cover different churches? It's they can't afford to. Well, be. they're going to continue to crash if people think their children are at risk of being molested. Yep. Though, so that's argument. a pretty self-defeating argument. Yeah. Other arguments have said that the uh, church canon law doesn't have anything to do with it either. That's not part of the role because it. Canon law does require that priests be defrocked in these situations, and that's true. But it clearly doesn't happen that way. It doesn't require that these be reported to outside authorities. It allows all sorts of gentler discipline if the person repents of their crime. That's the general argument I think in these cases is the difference between the Catholic sex abuse scandal and other secular institutions is the the leeway that they have from people taking a hands-off approach and letting them solve it within their own group. Right. Uh, and we know in the Ryan report and the Murphy report that especially in a predominantly Catholic country that doesn't have separation of church and state, we know that the police often look the other way. Yeah. The police did the same thing in Wisconsin in the United States too. Yeah, which they is also looked surprising away. to me. 
Well, if but I don't know why. If you think about it, how much power does that institution have? How many lawyers do yeah, they have that, that can help them out? If you're going to challenge the church directly, that's going to take a lot of time and resources and some people might just look and the And the church way. has literally uh, endless resources to fight these things. Although even that occurs – again, in secular institutions, there's been other coverages by news outlets of places like in uh, – oh, there's a whole thing recently in Texas where the state juvenile corrections facility had like a sky-high rate mm-hmm. of sexual sure. abuse. But that nobody reported it because it was you know, passed on to uh, – It was an to, internal the, the issue. politicians and, basically yeah. punted it away. My point in some of these things is, is it because there, these things uh, have been escaped notice because they're a Catholic institution or because they're a Catholic institution? Should we emphasize the, the, the religious nature of it or should we emphasize the fact that anything that is an institution that's deemed as untouchable or powerful would foster this, a similar culture of – you know, people not turning a blind eye and not investigating it. Right. Yeah, well, that's a good question. It's going to be a complex answer to whatever's causing this. But I think that statistic that shows that 54 percent of abuse cases in the United States involved perpetrators who were Catholic clergy, even though they constitute one quarter of the U.S. population, I think that is telling. The criticism with that, though, is that people are sensitized to Catholics now and they're more likely to publicize a case that's a Catholic priest abuse rather than another person, though. That's often the defense that you hear is that people are – are uh, the, the, it's consciousness raised now for priests as if, if it is – If a priest does it, yeah, I'm much more aware of it because of the, all those creepy priests. That, hmm. that might inflate the number. Yeah, I'm not saying that's true but I'm just saying the same yeah. argument is often raised in like uh, fluctuations in reported rapes as, sure. as a function of not the actual differences that occur from time to time with rapes but that people in many different regions are more or less uh, – Sensitized to the issue of rape, and then are more likely, for example, to feel free reporting that. Yeah. Uh, and so you have hmm. to factor out whatever that's due to an increased reporting of that. Uh, you know, like when marital rape uh, it wasn't even deemed possible a hundred years ago to right. have marital rape, and now since the women's movement, it's been labeled as a separate subtype of it's possible to be raped if you're a wife. And still not even widely recognized. And so then you see these rates go from basically zero to a certain. I don't know what the proportion is, but yeah. so, somebody could claim that there it's not an actual change in the fact that women are hadn't been raped before but just now that they're reporting right. them. Well, we need to take all that into account but at the same time, the fact that others are doing it too is never a good argument. <laughs> yeah. And when you look at the plain fact of the matter, um, sometimes they use this argument too. The media attention to it is so much that some people think there's a rapist you know, hiding out in every single Catholic church and they'll point out, look, only 2 percent of priests are pedophiles. Two percent is a huge amount, especially and when you two percent. That's that's <clears throat> reported too. And four I mean, percent. Uh, this comes from Sipe in nineteen ninety five as well. Two percent of priests are pedophiles. Possibly four percent should be classified as a febophiles. And they point out that look, these are small percentages, but they translate into substantial numbers. Uh, this could mean as many as 3,600 abusing priests in the United States. Wow. they trying to estimate how many uh, victims there might be. They say, well, let's just assume the perpetrator each had 10 victims, which that might be a lot for some, but some of these people have 200 victims. Exactly. You know? let's, let's assume that estimate. Well, that would mean as many as 36,000 young people have been abused 
There's another study that came out of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice that was uh, done on behalf of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Mm -hmm. They identified 10,667 victims of abuse in the last 50 years in the United States alone. And so whenever you have a confirmed instance, it's, it's, I think it's entirely rational to speculate that there might be that more. Certainly. Researchers such as Greeley in 1993 have estimated the number as high as perhaps 100,000 or more victims of Catholic clergy abuse, abuse alone. Now, granted, that's probably more to the high end, but still. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that – the rational response for the Catholic Church, the brightest thing for them to do would be to come down so hard because otherwise every priest is going to be suspected of being a potential abuser. If they find these instances, these very clear-cut ones, and they brought the hammer down on them, that's the only way the Catholic Church is going to get back any credibility. Well, they've am, I, am I wrong? Well, yes, I well, agree. Apologizing. They've apologized for all these past instances, but what they're saying, Dave, is that now they are cracking down. That's been yeah. one of the other defenses of the Pope himself. Uh, they say the Pope is a crusader against pedophilia. Except back when he was an archbishop. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Archbishop of Westminster, uh, Vincent Nichols, said Ratzinger's not an idle observer. His actions speak as well as his words. No, he's words. not an idle observer. <laughs> he says when the pope was an archbishop, he led important changes to church law, such as the extension of child abuse offenses to include sexual abuse of all under 18, age of 18, also included internet offenses in that, as well as the establishment of a fast-track dismissal for offenders. Other Vatican experts have said uh, – also commented that it's unfair, quote, that the pope who has done the most against pedophilia is attacked the most. Maybe the pope has done some things to reform church laws here and make it better. But I think you need to weigh that against all the things that he's done – that he hasn't done, right? such as the cases we just talked about but also uh, other ones. And this is this has upset me. Some of the media coverage of this has been great, but they seem to have forgotten everything that's happened, you know, before just a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. This is not the first time that Ratzinger has been personally accused of of not doing anything about this. It happened with uh, with Father Masil, founder of the Legion of Christ. Uh, this happened during the 1990s. Ratzinger ignored uh, all these accusations that he had been abusing children because he was Pope John Paul II's very close friend. Uh, Ratzinger even purportedly slapped a reporter for asking a question about it once. Do you mean physically slapped? Yes, physically slapped. Yeah. Well, they don't that, call him God's Rottweiler yeah, for nothing. That's according to The Guardian. <laughs> Of course, he's harboring people like Cardinal Law, who was mentioned earlier. And then again, there is that issue of the secret memo. It seems everybody's forgotten about this except for Christopher Hitchens. Who doesn't forget anything. But there was that secret letter in 2001 uh, that was issued to every bishop. It claimed that all these abuse accusations, that the investigations of them were under church jurisdiction and that any sharing of evidence with legal authorities or press was forbidden. In some cases, the punishment for turning information over was on the penalty of excommunication. Now, we've mentioned this in past podcasts. There is a link to this on the website, so you can check it out. Um, one thing I didn't realize, and I'm still not entirely sure about this, 
is that the penalty of excommunication might be reserved for cases where the abuse was learned about in the confessional. And so theological issues come up about how, you know, these guys oh. these guys are under a duty from God to keep those things private. Right. I don't think that excuses the church, but at least provides a context for such an extreme state punishment of excommunication. You know, I never right. thought about guys. that, but if you were an abusing priest and you had your own superior as a confessor, wouldn't that be one way to cover your ass in terms of that person reporting you is to quit confess it to them in confession and that then would yes. seal it as an internal matter? And in fact, oh. many have alleged that's that's why so many of these abuses happen in the confessional See, too. In, in therapy, like in psychology, we have – there's the, the the ethics rules say that there are certain things that you could – you're bound to break confidentiality right, over right. and sexual abuse is one of them. So even if a client – in a secular therapy setting says you know if they said I robbed a liquor store you can't tell anybody about that but if they say they abuse their kids or something like that you're bound to report that to the authorities in, in yeah. counseling there's well, only 18 states in the United States that re, uh, that require that clergy report these abuses as well many other states actually have an exemption for priests for I, w- exactly I was going to say reason. is this is this just something that they just don't have on the books but they actually went that other step and made an exemption. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, this letter, obviously, uh, some have accused it of of obstructing justice because it's saying they can't go to the authorities with this information. Right. And in fact, uh, the secret letter also, this was, uh, incidentally, this was originally leaked to the Observer and the Guardian back when the Cardinal Ratzinger became Pope. Only a few people picked it up and the, the story just kind of sunk down into the memory hole. Um, but the uh, something I didn't know about the letter and just learned recently is that it claims church jurisdiction uh, over these these internal investigations. That it, it begins to run from the quote the day when the minor has completed his 18th year of age, and then 10 years more. So for that time span, they are not unless the, you know they're being subpoenaed. Right. They are not to disclose any sort of information. Or face severe penalties for doing so. There's something significant about that time span. From 10 years after the person turns 18, Mm -hmm. that is actually within the legal uh, statute of limitations for prosecuting cases of rape in many countries. Now, in America, most states, uh, the statute of limitations – you know, it runs out about 20 years right. after the person reaches 18. If they don't file a complaint by then, it can't be pursued. But in other nations, uh, in some states, in American states, it can be lower. And in other nations, such as Germany, the statute of limitations is exactly that. It's 10 years after the person ter- turns 18. In other words, this is designed this is exactly, specifically yeah. to try to avoid legal prosecution of these priests. This is a measure to protect their own. This is very damning against yeah. Ratzinger. Real quick, let's look at some other defenses. Here's one of my favorites that you alluded to earlier, Dave, the therapy industry's yes. fault defense. Yep. This comes from Catholic League President Bill Donahue, one of my least favorite people. Oh, he's great. If we say his name often enough, he'll write an angry letter about us. I hope so. He's got a lot bigger fish to fry right now, though. Bill Donahue, referring to the Hullerman case in Munich, says, Let's say Archbishop Joseph Ratzinger, now the Pope, did in fact learn of the transfer. So what? Wasn't that what he was expected to do? That was the drill of the day. After being treated, the patient returns to work. A more hardline approach obviously makes more sense, but the therapeutic industry is very powerful. 
this is completely ridiculous because Clearly, it's that institution that's yeah. causing the problem. It's not clear Hellerman went through any kind of therapy before he was reinstated. And if he did, it could have at the most lasted 17 days because January 15th right. is when the memo approves treatment and he is reinstated on February 1st. That is just they're preposterous. They're not miracle workers. <laughs> yeah. But I think the prize for me for most entertaining defense of all. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Come on. Goes to the chief exorcist, Father Gabriel Amorth. Yes. I love this one. Who says that the devil lives inside the Vatican. He says actually that this – the child abuse scandal is proof that the devil lives inside of the Vatican. Yeah, yeah. As the chief exorcist – and by the way, he claims to have performed um, 70,000 uh, – dealt with 70,000 cases of demonic possession, which I, I heard someone do a breakdown of that and that was like one exorcism every seven minutes or something <laughs> like that. I mean just – and he said – He's an imaginative fellow, yeah. isn't well, he? And sometimes combine, it takes uh, more than one exorcism to take care of a demon. And you can combine <sighs> demans in one victim, so – Absolutely. they're legion as we know. Yes. Oh, OK. And yeah, you can do multiple ones down. at the same time, blah, blah, blah. But um, the thing that cracks me up about this guy is he's the chief exorcist for the Vatican – and he's saying the Vatican is filled with demons. Yeah. That's like a, a, an exterminator saying my house is overrun with termites. <laughs> yeah, you're not doing your For job. For God's sake, man. You are – you're a failure. <laughs> well, I was uh, – in class we watch uh, was videos about churches, that, Pentecostal churches that specialize in things like exercising demons yeah. and witchcraft. And so they basically have like – it's almost like a demonic ministry where the guy calls out demons and it seems like every other person in the congregation falls oh, yeah, over. Sure. And, and so I was – some one of the you know, feisty students says, why is it that, that these you know, Pentecostal conservative – Denominations have so many demons in that you'd think that exactly. that would be the demon-free yeah. zone. Yeah. And another student said because um, something about – this is paraphrasing, but something about that because the devil only strikes people who are a threat to him. He wants the best souls. Right. He's Why not going to come after us because we're already evil. That's uh, That was the conclusion of Amorth too. He, yep. he said the holy smoke uh, or the, the smoke <laughs> of the devil resides in holy chambers. That's right. Well done, sir. Yeah. Yeah. I think an honorable mention should go out to the Pope himself who said the influence of liberal secular society yeah, on the priesthood and, and the sexual revolution played a role in Irish abuse scandals. Yes, and the it was Cardinal Christoph Schoenbern who who blamed uh in part the scandal on what happened during the so-called sexual revolution. Mm -hmm. I, I I can't imagine what his argument is there because what so the church Hasn't come around on appointing women to yeah. the clergy. They haven't stopped fighting. Haven't accepted homosexuals. Extra, yeah, as, homosexuals, you know, extramarital sex, birth control, or anything like that. But a few of them went, "Hey, I think this is why I can rape children." Yeah, totally. It's it's a pretty lame excuse. Well, regardless, it is absolutely clear now. That this is a serious worldwide problem. And it reaches all the way up to the top, yep. the very top. I think at this point, the, the apologists are just inviting ridicule. Unfortunately, we are recording this a couple days before this the is present Palm Sunday. Yes, we're actually we're recording, recording on, Palm, on Sunday. Palm Sunday. I actually rode uh, down to the studio today on a donkey. So Good for you. Yeah. Um, but we're recording this a couple days before Catholic League President Bill Donahue has his one-page ad in the New York Times uh, where he 
has promised this is the final straw and he's going to put this whole matter to rest. So we can't respond to his claims just yet. But uh, I imagine it's going to be the same old, same old. Well, either yet. that or this is the last episode of the show because he will have totally obliterated any of our arguments. In closing, is there anything good that's going to come out of this scandal? Perhaps one good thing would be if, if the church really took it to heart, then something good might come out of this. So far, they're denying the whole thing. Uh, the Pope even himself just said yesterday that he will he will not be intimidated. At the, these are just vicious attacks. But is, is anything good going to come out of this? There might be a couple of things. For one – both Germany and Wisconsin here in the United States are, as a result of these scandals, are working to increase the statute of limitations on cases of child abuse. It's a small step, but it's something. Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> Especially because that then applies to not just church-related abuse. That's That opens up the window for anyone who is abused because it's often very difficult for people to, to talk about this until – Quite a bit of time has passed. People reporting that they thought they were the only ones right. until these these scandals came out. Now they feel like they can talk about it. Interestingly, the Milwaukee Archdiocese is fighting this in the courts, <laughs> the the extension of the uh, statute of limitations. So uh, once again, showing it's they're doing everything possible to crack down yeah. on the abuses. So that's a good thing. Another interesting development is that two federal appeals courts in recent months here in the United States have allowed sexual abuse lawsuits against the Vatican to proceed. This is in the states of Oregon and Kentucky. Now, traditionally, this this doesn't happen because the Vatican is considered a foreign country with immunity to lawsuits. In fact, just as a side note, in Europe – uh, Europe is not a common law country like the United States or Canada or Australia, so defendants can't sue the church for negligence. So a lot of these things can't be pursued much further, I mean, except against the perpetrators themselves. But regardless, what United States law does allow is to seize documents if they exist in churches in the United States. But these cases in Oregon and Kentucky could open that up to allowing them to subpoena the Vatican itself and to actually call Vatican officials to the United States to testify under oath if this wow. goes through. I don't know if it will happen, but if it does – Well, the one thing that could be a barrier to this is if the Supreme Court takes up the case this summer. Yeah, because the Supreme Court is a majority Catholic yep. court. It's already been appealed to the to the Supreme Court. So if they take it up and they overturn the federal appeals ruling – then that won't happen. Right. And as you said, you know, how, ma- how many are there? There's five. Five of them are Catholic, I believe. There's Alito, Scalia, uh, Scalia Roberts. Thomas, Roberts, and Kennedy. And Kennedy. And Sotomayor, six. Yeah, but she's a liberal. Well, but Kennedy's one of the. It doesn't mean when push comes to shove that she's not going to feel. Catholic. Well, it, 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 yeah, thank you. It'll be interesting to see how how the politics um, butt up against Do, the religion. Can Supreme Court justices recuse themselves? They can. They don't if there's Scalia. No, exactly. <laughs> there was a recent scandal that Scalia didn't recuse himself, and it involved. I want to say a, a son of a friend or something. I, I don't know. There, there was some case that he was. 
um, fairly closely linked to, and he didn't recuse himself. Well, if this has the potential to go, you know, release documents that might bring <laughs> have all in five of them recuse themselves, top Vatican officials, maybe <laughs> even the Pope. Yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? That would be awesome. Not going to happen, but it would be no, awesome. No, it won't happen. Uh, you had um, someone you wanted to put on the props list for this week. With as as many of these people who are making lame excuses for the Pope and the Church, at least one Catholic source, the National Catholic Reporter, did a good job. They they published an article called Credibility Gap, Pope Needs to Answer Questions. And it is an editorial, the National Catholic Reporter editorial. Yes, but it's printed with the support oh, yeah. of the publication. Absolutely. And it is a it is very strongly worded. They are not they are not weaseling out of the facts here. In fact, uh, quite the contrary. They document the history of abuse themselves and basically lay down the line saying, look, Pope, your credibility is on the line. Our entire church's credibility is on the line. You cannot just issue these dismissals. You need to actually answer specific questions. You need to answer them open and honestly or our church is never going to move forward. So props big time to the National Catholic Reporter for having the integrity to come out about that. Also another one, I thought this was cool. Props to a group of Americans including a gentleman by the name of Peter Isley who lives in Milwaukee. They were actually in Rome at the time that this scandal was breaking. And did they do as the Romans do? (laughs) They started a impromptu news conference outside of St. Peter's Square to protest how the pope was handling the the Murphy case in Wisconsin. They were actually – Isley and three other people in the group were arrested uh, and they were held briefly for holding a news conference without a permit. After they were released, Isley said, we've spent more time in the police station than Father Murphy did in his entire life. Amen. So props to them for making that statement. And finally, props to the New York Times. My gosh. Excellent coverage. These guys have been relentless and they're being very smart about it. They're releasing these. These stories are trickling out every couple of days. Mm -hmm. They're they're making sure that this doesn't drop out of the spotlight and that pressure continues to build on these guys. Well, speaking of uh, of liberal priests, have you guys seen the the Michael Moore capitalism movie? No, I haven't actually. I was shocked that he had his priest from Flint there uh, as critical of – well, capitalism basically. They they were saying that it's it's immoral and that – it's counter to the Jesus teachings and blah blah blah. And I'm like, these are like, you know, official Catholic priests. They're I was under the impression that they weren't allowed to do that sort of thing, you know, ever since the previous Pope had cracked down on liberation theology yeah, in right, Latin right. America mm-hmm. with you know, you socialist priests need to shut up. I was surprised that they have that much leeway in yeah. well, the liberation probably don't, but the yeah, liberation theology movement is still alive in Latin America, South America and Africa right now. I'm sure these scandals exist there too and it's probably going to be a while if ever before those break. But right. you know, it's sometimes in the developing world where the Catholic Church does some of their worst things but also does some of their best work. A lot of – a lot of times when some sort of human, human rights abuses, the stories are broken to the press or they've brought, been brought attention to different NGOs. A lot of times it's, it's the Catholic Church – in these developing nations that are the ones that document and, and bring these to light. So sure. yeah, there's a, I mean there's a lot of really noble people 
in yeah. this institution yeah. as well. Uh, we're not implying that that's not the case. So. I thought socialism was godless though. That's what everyone says. Yeah. Well, we'll find out now that we have our socialized healthcare system. Well, let's uh, in this dark and dreary episode about child abuse, let's have a stranger than fiction. Last Supper Supersized. A study is coming out, and this is from the International Journal of Obesity, where a couple of uh, brothers, actually, uh, one I believe is a um, theology teacher or a, a religion teacher, and one is a one is a doctor, I think, um, have studied fifty-two artists' renderings of the Last Supper. I just got shades of Monty Python here. Yeah, yeah. And that one and balances the two skinny ones. They have found that over time. Portion sizes at the Last Supper have grown. More recent depictions show larger portion sizes, which they they connect to uh, growing. Pardon the pun. Problems with obesity in in America. We need to relate to a Jesus who is like us. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so should we have a an, an obese Jesus hanging on the cross? And, and just to steal a line from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, in, in one of the recent pictures, you can actually hear Judas mumbling, we're going to need a bigger cross. <laughs> my mind was really with possible like, you know, take, eat, this is my body, but only take one portion. Your triglycerides are through the roof, Judas. Yeah. This is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And do you want that supersized? <laughs> Uh, well, that's all for this week. Until next week, please check out our website at doubtcast.org. Visit our forum at doubtcast.forummotion.net. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Zazzle slash doubtcast. Also, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but there's a disturbing trend on iTunes where people are writing reviews singling out Luke as being especially funny and or intelligent. That ha- well, how come I don't happened. see these things? That hasn't happened in a long time. No, we just, got one, like we just got one yesterday. Oh. I can't see these things. Why don't you send them to me? I, but because it makes me feel dirty that we have so many reviews written by Luke himself, I'm encouraging the rest of you out there to go out. And, and if you like the show, if you like what you're, you're hearing, write a review on iTunes. It really does help us out. And even better than that, share the show with a friend. I think it's been established, given my level of tech skills, that I can't possibly be writing the iTunes if I don't <laughs> even know what it is. That's true. That, that is true. You're just going to encourage that trend, Dave. Uh, well, you know, hey, if they're writing reviews, they're writing reviews. I don't even care if they're sucking up to Dr. Professor anymore. So in the meantime, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time with more of your skeptical guide to religion right here on Reasonable Doubts. Catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.